welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners of Cycling in Alignment. We are back for another episode, episode number 742. Well, not really, but... I am known to speak in hyperbole from time to time. Tonight you get a walking podcast. I'm walking around my neighborhood. It's about 8 o'clock at night, so it's pretty quiet here. You might be able to hear the crickets, which are amazing. You also might hear an occasional car or maybe a dog. Hopefully no leaf blowers. Don't get me started on the freaking leaf blowers. Today, tonight rather, we're going to talk about... The significance of core. You've probably heard lots of people talk about how important the core is, and maybe you have some ideas on what the core is made of, what muscles it is comprised of, and perhaps you've even done some core work. Most people have. Most people sort of do it when they think about it, but not really regularly, and probably not optimally in my experience. I would say that on average, when I ask people what they do for their core routine, most the most common responses I get are side planks, prone planks, prone meaning your belly button is facing towards the ground, and crunches. And that's pretty much it. Uh, I occasionally, I have people who do some more complex stuff than that. And there's nothing wrong with those exercises, as Paul Chuck, one of my mentors, is fond of saying. There's no such thing as a good exercise or a bad exercise. They're just poorly prescribed exercises or optimally prescribed exercises. And I definitely agree with that philosophy. So why do we care? Why is core so important? Why is it such a buzzword? Why is it a thing that people talk about and what does it actually mean? We'll break that down. There are really four primary muscles or muscle groups that consist of the core. And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to refer to the core as the core, but really what I'm talking about is what you might say the deep core or the inner core. I mean, technically speaking, one definition of core, broadly speaking, is anything that's left when you cut off the arms and the legs. So that's a lot of muscles. Also notice that that definition does not include cutting off the head, and that is because the cervical flexors and extensors, that is the muscles that move your chin down towards your chest or move your head up to look at the stars, are included in the muscles of the core. And I think a lot of people don't really think that way, but it is definitely the case. So when we're talking about these four major muscle groups of the inner core or the deep core, this is what stabilizes the spine under load. This is really important for cycling because, of course, during cycling, we're making a lot of distal force, meaning we're pushing really hard with our feet on the pedals, and sometimes we're pulling really hard on the handlebars. Distal meaning far away. Proximal being the opposite of distal, meaning close towards the center. So when I say distal force, what I mean is you're pushing with an appendage usually, like a foot or a hand. 
And if you think about that from a biomechanical perspective, that generates, we'll say, uh, a repercussion in the body. That is to say, if I push really hard and extend my knee and my hip using my quads and my glutes, and I push against the ground, well, what's going to happen to my hip? It's going to want to go away from the ground because unless you're really, really, really strong, the ground doesn't move. Now, maybe you move the earth a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a millimeter if you're really strong, but probably not. Probably what happened is you moved away from the ground. That would be an example of a closed chain exercise, meaning you're pushing against something that doesn't move. A bicycle, more classically, is considered an open chain exercise, where when you push on something, it moves away from you. For example, when you lift a kettlebell off the ground, that's an open chain exercise. When you push on a pedal and it moves away from your hip, that's an open chain exercise. But even in that scenario, you still have to stabilize the hip, and that's where the deep or inner core comes in. But again, let's back out. Before we get to the specifics, why do we care? Well, we care because you've probably noticed, broadly speaking, we can divide all cyclists, all riders into two categories. Those who have what we call in kind of old school terms, suplex or fluid movement on the bike or supple muscle. That is to say that when they make a lot of power, now you can probably really hear the crickets. I can they're here. They're part of our audience. They're talking with us. They have lots to say tonight. When, when a rider who's very experienced and has many kilometers in their legs pedals a bike, you may have noticed that even when they put on a lot of power or put a lot of power into the pedals, I'll say, they just seem to have this grace, this fluidity. Their hips don't move a lot. Their shoulders and back don't move a lot. And their spine doesn't move a lot and their legs are more sewing machine like the muscles just look it's it's a bit obtuse to describe the movement that's why you have to use these sort of subjective qualifiers like supple but once you get the idea it's pretty easy to see and then there are athletes who just sort of smash the pedals they look more like they're fighting the bike rather than gliding on the bike they look as though it's a minor wrestling match. And some of that can be really obvious. It can be real, we'll say, asymmetrical hip motion or even bilateral hip motion, meaning both hips are moving, but quite a bit. It can be bouncing on the seat, right? It can be knees wobbling and not tracking smoothly in line. <clears throat> it can mean that the ankles are uh, excessively moving through flexion and extension, which is another way to say that they have too much ankling. For those of you who listen to my podcast in the past, you know that I'm not a fan of ankling in general. I think ankling is one of the 99 Italian bike fit myths that needs to die, or coaching myths, I should say. I don't know if it's really Italian, but a lot of things at the origin of the sport are Belgian, Italian, French. Europe has graced us with this magical sport for the most part. <clears throat> and so when we see the difference between these two class of riders, 
it's pretty obvious. If you're in a group ride, they're the riders who are sort of fighting the bike and wrestling with the bike a bit and just don't look at home on the bike. They don't look like their movement is coordinated. The muscles aren't really co-contracting in, we'll say, a, a smooth manner, right? A supple manner. And then there are athletes who just seem to glide on the bike. Their legs just apply power, and even when the power gets a lot higher, things don't change a lot. They don't have a lot of body English. Maybe they have a gentle rocking of the shoulders, a rhythmic rocking of the shoulders, perhaps even some rocking of the hips, but the bike goes fast. And these riders are defined by one simple aspect that the newbie is lacking, or not even necessarily a newbie. You know, riders who don't have a lot of suplex or a lot of supple muscle can be quite experienced or have many years in their legs, and they can still kind of be fighting the bike. But cycling age does roughly correlate with these characteristics. And when we see the difference between these riders, the definition, the dividing line is really efficiency. So this is what we are after. This is one of the elusive goals of training, at least in an old school paradigm. New school riding, all anybody gives a shit about is FTP, FTP, FTP. Functional threshold power, snore. So in the world of old school cycling where efficiency was important, this is what people strove to achieve. They worked towards efficiency. And this was a primary goal of training, especially in the early season. An old school methodology of coaching taught that there was an order of operations in how you trained for a season. And one of the earliest things that you built was an efficient, smooth pedal stroke using supple muscle. And the method to do this is really quite elegant and not at all complex. It simply means you rode a lot of kilometers on flat roads in a small gear, pedaling a high cadence. Not real rocket science, but it's very effective. And you rode lots. And this is the simplest training advice given to most beginning cyclists. Want to get better? Ride lots. Now, that's a very, very 50,000-foot view or sophomoric perspective on training, but there's quite a bit of truth to it as well. If you ride a lot in a little gear on flat roads, you're going to develop a, a smooth pedal stroke. And there's something, there's sort of a natural law to that type of training, which is that when you perform that type of training, it sort of works out a lot of niggles because your load isn't high and you're not putting the cart before the horse. You're respecting that order of operations. You're gaining that muscular efficiency, but you're also giving the body time without adding too much intensity too quickly to sort of sort out some of its own problems. That is to say, biomechanical challenges, things like pronation, things like um, poor hip flexibility, things like poor hip hinging ability. Some of that can be alleviated by just lots and lots of miles. Not all of it, though. Sometimes you can end up with horrible habits. And then you go pretty fast on the bike and you think you're a stud or a super fast chick. But really, what you did is give yourself cycling posture. Head trombone. So, what is what is at the essence, the core of this efficiency that these experienced riders have? Is it just kilometers? Well, sometimes kilometers definitely contribute to it, but there's something more. 
And the difference is a co-contractor, the utilization of the fine motor units, that is the core, or really to break this down, we'll say it this way. Every muscle in the body has both slow twitch and fast twitch fibers. Every muscle in the body has tonic and phasic fibers. So phasic fibers are fast twitch. They're dominated by anaerobic or type two characteristics. Tonic fibers are slow twitch or type one. And you probably know the characteristics of each of these fibers are different. Anaerobic type two fibers, fast twitch fibers burn sugar, they burn glycogen. They're the big pop. They're the super fast interval. They are the muscles you use during your maximal efforts. A five minute maximal effort, for example, or even a 30 minute maximal effort, or a surge out of a corner, or an attack over a small roller in a, in a road race, or a bridge from the peloton to the breakaway. These are all examples of the types of efforts you would use or perform that would use a lot of fast twitch fibers and a lot of glycogen. And they are phasic muscles and they're like blunt force instruments, but an efficient athlete can bounce back and forth. And at lower intensity, they can recruit the finer motor units of the type one fibers. And they can use the deep core to stabilize and stabilize the system and help improve the efficiency of the overall system, which reduces reliance on the phasic muscles, the big boys or girls. And that's the goal is to become efficient as a cyclist. So core plays a role in that. There are other things that play a role in that too. Fiber type as a general observation of the phenotype of an athlete, how the athlete expresses themselves, muscle tone, even muscle tension, meaning if you're a really high strung person and you're nervous all the time and you're walking around in 2021 terrified that you're going to get COVID or going to get hit by a car at any given moment, that's a lot of nervous system tension and nervous system tension upregulates tonicity of muscles and it helps you recruit your phasic muscles at the expense of your tonic muscles. So it upregulates recruitment of type two fibers and down regulates recruitment of type one fibers. So I'm giving you this perspective to help illustrate the idea that, you know, if you're a meditator or if you're in touch with your breath practice, or even if you're just consciously able to calm or use whatever techniques you have, I'm, I'm not telling you to meditate or use breath practice specifically. I'm just citing those as examples of things you might use. Any technique you, any technique you can use to calm yourself and to upregulate parasympathetic low, uh, response and downregulate sympathetic response in daily life will serve you in this respect. So even this is a great example of off the bike. How are you living your life? Are you watching super stressful movies? Are you playing high stress video games? Are you racing your car around at, you know, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and flipping people off at stoplights and getting in fights at bars. All those things are only going to add to the fire and increase global 
global sympathetic tone. So it's going to add to the problem. So a good illustration there of hopefully I'm getting your gears turning in how lifestyle habits bleed over into cycling performance. And this isn't news flat. This isn't uh, the first time you've heard this probably, but perhaps this way of framing it will give you a little more insight. Another thing to think about is when we're talking about the core, at the moment, we're talking about a biomechanical model. I mean, just now I left the biomechanical model a little bit, but in most bike fits, most of the time, most fitters and most athletes are approaching the fit with a biomechanical lens. That is to say, my knee hurts. Is it because my saddle's too high or too low or too far forward or the wrong saddle or the wrong cleats or the wrong footbeds? And these are all biomechanical aspects of explaining knee pain. But there are many other reasons why knee pain can exist. And I'm going to start to unpack those in future podcasts so that we can break them down and I can give you actionable advice on how to start to figure out what's what. But just to plant the seeds, if you have trauma in your life, any type of trauma, there will be a somatic response to that trauma. What do I mean? Well, okay, trauma can take different forms. We can have acute trauma, like you crash in a criterium and you get your knee and hip are all skinned up or you break a bone. That's acute trauma. So clearly there is a somatic response to you hitting the ground. That is you had torn flesh and broken bones. That's the soma. The soma just means your body. So a somatic response or a somatic concurrence or coupling with trauma just means that when you have trauma, there's a physical coupling manifestation. But the other thing people aren't always aware of is that you can have an emotional trauma and there will be a physical somatic coupling. This is actually always the case because trauma is just a threat to the nervous system. The nervous system doesn't really know if you hit the ground because you fell off your bike in a corner or if your dog died. Either one of those events from a nervous system perspective are perceived as a threat to your life. When someone or an animal or a person you know dies, that's a direct threat to your own, well, ability to express love, to be loved. And that's threatening when those are taken away. And it's also a reminder of our own mortality. And that is a threat to the nervous system. The nervous system sees that as impending death. So there will be a somatic response to that. And sometimes those somatic responses can be ongoing in your body, especially if it happened in childhood. So that's the, that's uh, an area of bike fit or rather human, we'll say trauma examination and treatment that goes beyond the biomechanical model. So I'll unpack that further in different episodes, but onward to the core. So we have the four major muscle groups um, or, well, really the pelvic floor is the group and the other ones are just individual muscles. So we can think of our inner core as kind of like a box. And this box is essential to your performance on the bike. Ultimately, if these muscles are not innervated properly, meaning they don't turn on and turn off, 
and they don't have the proper tone and function, then you're going to be running into some problems. And these problems can manifest in all kinds of ways. Back pain, knee pain, ankle pain, foot pain, Achilles pain, shoulder pain. And I know that may seem far-fetched, but it is absolutely true. And as you know, my last pod was a drive out to San Diego for Czech IMS3 course. That's integrated movement specialist level three. And in taking this course this week, I learned about a million things to speak in hyperbole again, or maybe not. I was pretty much drinking from the fire hose um, eight to six every day and then homework on top of that. It was a very intense course. Uh, I loved every minute of it. But one thing that I came away from that course with was a new reinforced and reinvigorated respect for how much from when from a biomechanical perspective people are injured the core is so frequently the solution to their challenges it's just overwhelming i mean we looked at so many case studies we had so many examples in class we had so many students bring up examples of current clients and the common denominator for all these cases without exception was that a part or the whole of their core, their inner core, their deep core was not firing correctly, was not working right. Now, it doesn't mean it was the whole solution and it doesn't mean it was going to solve all their problems, but every case without exception, one of the conclusions was, yep, I need more core work. Now, the key is to do it correctly and to know which muscles need work. That part requires a bit of discernment and knowledge, a bit of education. So I'll do my best to give you some little actionable bits during this pod that can help with that. And that's only the start. This is basically a seed planting session. But for those of you who figure this out, you can begin to dig a bit and start to figure out and self-diagnose your own problems. Because that's one of the core teachings of the, the Czech system is that you're not really here to just hand out salmon to people. You're here to teach them how to catch the salmon, cook the salmon skin the salmon, cook the salmon, and eat the salmon. That's the point. Because there's only one me, and as I mentioned, I have yet to figure out how to make Calvin's transmortifier and make more of myself. Um, although that's kind of what Paul's doing. Although not really, because I say that jokingly, but one of Paul's other teachings is that he teaches us how to think, not what to think, which is critical. Or another way to say that is, apparently Mark Twain said, don't let your education get in the way of, don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. I think that's the quote, which is a great way to think about it. So the core, the inner core or deep core will say is made up of these four muscles. The front side of this box that surrounds your spine and provides hoop tension during high load and also should be conditioned well enough to provide stabilization during low or moderate level activities, such as walking around your neighborhood or riding your bike in zone one or zone two or recovery pace or aerobic endurance pace, however you term your zones, or even tempo. The core should be active all the time. And sometimes people ask me, well, should I be using, activating my core while I'm riding? Well, maybe in the short term, yes, but long term, you should not be consciously trying to activate your core while you're riding, even at any intensity should be automatic that's the goal so the front muscle the the one on the front side is the transversus abdominis 
sometimes referred to more casually as the transverse abdominis. And I equate this to your cummerbund. Back in the day when we used to go to high school prom, I don't know if kids do that anymore, but wow, do I sound like I'm going to go play pinochle right now. We used to rent a tux. I don't know who came up with that racket. And you got this thing called a cummerbund. And all the tuxes were the same, and they all cost a lot of money. But the thing you got to choose was the color of your cummerbund. And it basically is like a giant fat weight belt that goes across the front of your body. And it has these pleats in it that run horizontally. And the reason the transverse abdominis kind of reminds me of a cummerbund is because the fibers run in the transverse plane. That means horizontally as though, as though they were parallel to your belt. And that's why it's named. That's why it has transverse in the name. It is the deepest muscle of the flat muscles of the abdomen. It's underneath your rectus abdominis, which is your six pack or eight pack muscle, your beach muscle. And the rectus is the muscle that most people associate with a strong core. And when you're firing rectus and not transversus abdominis, you do not have true stability of the spine and the, the deep core is not working correctly. So this is one of the biggest problems with crunches is it's really easy to rely on rectus and ignore or not fire transversus. And we don't want to do this. Also, one of the other exercises I hear most frequently when I ask people what their core routine is, they say, oh, I do straight leg raises. And these are a train wreck for cyclists. Do not do straight leg raises. All you're going to do is you're going to fire your transversus abdominis for about three reps, and then it's going to get tired, and then you're going to default to the more phasic muscles, the prime movers, which will be your rectus femoris or your center quadricep muscle, which is a hip flexor, and your rectus abdominis. And you're going to think that you are ripping yourself to shreds and that you need a cheese grater and a sewing kit and all those things to shred cheese on your shredded abs and... Really, you're, you're getting farther off the target with that one. Straight, no cyclist should ever do straight leg raises. I'll just say that as a blanket statement. Those things are a disaster. I would never prescribe those for any of my clients. No. So uh, what's an example of a way to fire the transverse abdominis? Well, there's a really good uh, exercise that I'm going to include a link to in our show notes. And I'll also put a link to it in the Instagram drop. And it's on the Czech website. And it's called the four-point tummy vacuum. And as you might imagine, you're going to be on all fours with your hands just below your shoulders and your knees below your hips. And you're going to use a neutral spine. I like to use a dowel for this exercise. And we want three points of contact with the dowel, one at the sacrum, one at the thoracic spine, right in between the shoulder blades, and one at the back of the head. And if your lower back is touching the spine, that's your lumbar spine, which is directly above your belly button or behind your belly button. If that part of, the, of your back is touching the dowel, then you need to drop your spine down a little bit, just enough so that you could fit the knuckles of your hand through that gap between the dowel and your spine. And then you've got the correct lumbar curve. If your lumbar curve is too much, then you can fit your whole hand through there or more. We don't really want that. We want to optimize your spinal curve and maintain that spinal curve. How do you know with this dowel on your back? Well, use a mirror. I'm a huge fan of narcissism when it comes to learning exercises because most of us are visual learners to a high degree. 
So just do it next to a mirror and look over to your side and see where the dowel is and see what your lumbar curve looks like. So this exercise does three things. It's super powerful because it restores your natural curve, the natural curves of your spine using the dowel as your spotter. It also works on proper breath mechanics and pattern, and it also trains your transverse abdominis. So it's a really useful exercise. And I'll let you read the text on Paul's site about how to do this exercise, but just very briefly, you're going to inhale. And when you inhale, your diaphragm, which is the next muscle on our list, will contract and push down. The diaphragm is shaped like an umbrella and it pushes your viscera down. Your viscera is just your gut. It's your intestines and organs that are below, that are in the visceral cavity. Things like livers and gallbladders and stuff like that. And when your diaphragm contracts, that's what makes room for the lungs to inflate with air. And so if when you inhale, your stomach doesn't bulge out around your belly button, then you may have an inverted breathing pattern. Or you may be just contracting your rectus abdominis to keep your belly from sticking out because God forbid your belly sticks out. doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal. None of us want to look fat, right? It's so unsightly. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been completely brainwashed by all those men's fitness magazines that I see every time I'm in the checkout at the grocery store because if I don't have abs like that guy, I'm a complete failure. Think about that for a minute. So, when you exhale, the best way to do it in the four-point tummy vacuum is to push the air out with pursed lips and make a sound like this. And when this happens, you'll squeeze and contract transverse abdominis and pull your belly button towards the spine. This is the classic cue. So you wanna flatten your belly button towards your spine as much as possible. More, 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 more. And on each exhale, you want to completely empty your stomach. And if you're doing it right, you should be able to poke yourself about five centimeters to either side of the belly button and feel that wall of muscle is very taut and very contracted. And especially at the bottom of the exhale, when your lungs are completely empty and you've smashed that belly button as close to the spine as possible, that muscle should be on, on, on. And if it's not, then your TVA is not working right. So play with it, practice it. Try 10 or 15 reps. When you exhale, try and hold it at maximal contraction for three, five, maybe eight or 10 seconds if you're good. And then inhale and reset the breath and watch that belly hang down. What's nice about the, this four-point tummy vacuum is that when you're in that horizontal position, you can feel your, your, on your inhale, you can feel your viscera kind of drop down and you can see the belly expand. It should look like you swallowed a watermelon if you're doing it right. And for those of you who have been paying attention, Occasionally, you might see photos of world tour riders riding in mountains on long passes, and you may notice that they look a little chubby. It's like, what's going on there? Why do they have that big, giant belly? That is a diaphragmatic breath, and that means they are inhaling, and the diaphragm is contracting. I'm just going to go straight into the diaphragm now, and it pushes the viscera out. The diaphragm is like an umbrella. It's the separator of the thoracic and visceral cavities. It kind of divides those two cavities. 
And when that umbrella contracts, it pushes down on the viscera and pushes them out. Remember, your lungs aren't muscles. They're just sort of like sacs. They're passive. So in order to inflate them, the muscles around them have to make room for them to inflate. And there are other muscles that do this as well, but the diaphragm is the primary muscle of respiration. And so if you have an inverted breathing pattern, or if you are not innervating the diaphragm correctly, or if when you inhale, you are also fighting against your own rectus abdominis, you have two things happening. One, you have a breathing dysfunction, and two, you have a core dysfunction. And your hips and lower back will never be as stable as they can be as long as you continue to breathe that way. So get on it. The best way to train the diaphragm is to start some breathing exercises and get in touch with it and, and correct your breathing pattern. And I mentioned this one on the pods before in the past, but a great starting point for that is the book, The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McGowan. You can find that all over the place where you find books. I recommend your local bookstore. And that's a great resource to get started. Another one is the Soma seven day breath practice where they teach proper breathing technique. And then that gets into some breath work practices. Uh, it's a seven day program that's free and it takes about 20 minutes a day and it teaches you proper breathing technique and it gives you some breath work that can help you. And they use a technique that's called breathing in beats, which means the exhale and inhale are coordinated with musical beats and it helps to rhythmize your breath after you, hello there, after you've learned the proper technique. Some happy people riding their bikes to go enjoy some libations, perhaps. So, that's number two, diaphragm. Number three, multifidus. Multifidus is a really cool pair of muscles that run all the way up your back on either side of your spine. They go from the sacrum, which is... Everybody knows what the sacrum is, right? It's basically kind of where your tailbone is, right? All the way up to your cervical spine. So pretty much to the base of your skull. But they're the most developed around the lumbar spine, which is the lower back area. That's where multifidus is biggest and strongest. And multifidus has the capacity to make a lot of force because it's one of the deepest muscles of the core. And we're, multifidus is a workhorse. Multifidus does everything. Great ways to work multifidus include things like deadlifts. But of course, if you're deadlifting heavy, it's far too easy to use the phasic muscles and the big prime movers over multifidus. You want to make sure multifidus is firing properly. There's a drill in the check system used to work multifidus called the doll's hip maneuver, which I don't think I, you can find online anywhere. I looked around for it. I think that's something you have to be taught by a check practitioner. But it's a very subtle movement, and it's there to help you fire a multifidus, learn how to fire it. But it's not really an exercise you learn to train multifidus or hypertrophy it. It's just there to make the connection, the neural connection. And a lot of times, that's the first step. When people can't fire a muscle, they're just not capable of it. You have to teach them how to make that neural connection. So it's an important part of any rehab. Or as Paul would say, isolate and then integrate. First, you isolate the muscle. You, you turn it on. You teach the person how to consciously turn it on, fire it, contract it, and then release it. And then you integrate it into movement, into fluid movement. And that's what we're trying to do here is integrate our core into fluid pedaling with supple muscle. 
and make you an efficient cyclist. Now, of course, the inner core is useful for lots more things besides cycling. It's useful for picking up heavy objects and swinging a baseball bat or playing catch with your dog. Yes, some people's dogs actually play catch. I've seen it. It's a thing. So multifidus makes up the backside of this box of core. And it, and what's interesting about multifidus is that it's sort of like a ladder. It's like a, a set of, it's got fibers that run diagonally with the, um, the lower part of the fibers, the inferior part on the lateral side of the spine and the superior part on the medial side of the spine. So what that means is if I were standing behind you and I were to take a water-based marker and draw where multifidus went on you, I would start closer to your hip and draw a, a diagonal line that went up your back towards the middle of your spine. And then I would draw another one and another one. And what they do is they go from the, the bony aspects of the spine at a diagonal and they connect two to four vertebra above where the origin is or the start of the muscle, as you might say. Origin and insertion are, are phases, are, excuse me, are terms that are kind of being phased out of anatomy. So, but that's, that's how multifidus works. It's got these fibers that run diagonally up the sides of the spine. It's, it's a cool looking muscle and you can kind of see what it does immediately. It's a spinal extensor is what it does. That means that when you contract multifidus, your spine gets longer and moves into axial extension. Now, here's an interesting thing about multifidus. If you recall my last podcast, I talked about some of the things that cycling does to the human body that are less than optimal. And one of them is that it puts us in spinal flexion all the time. So if multifidus is a spinal extensor, that is, it makes the spine straight and long, or really arches your back if you go past neutral, past waterline, we might say, right? That would be arching your back is how people would commonly commonly refer to it, which means that your belly button would be sticking out ahead of your, let me think about how to describe this in non-anatomical terms. Uh, well, a forward bend would be when you reach over and touch your toes, that's spinal flexion. The opposite would be extension. So if you were to drape yourself over a stability ball, for example, that would be spinal extension, right? Got it? So. That's what multifidus does. It extends your spine or arches your spine. And if we're in spinal flexion all the time, that means multifidus is going to A, be strong, or B, be long and weak. Strong and short or long and weak? Well, probably long and weak for most people, especially if they're flexing the spine around L3, which is the vertebra that's directly behind your belly button, right? or L2, L1, somewhere in there, which are the two vertebrae above that. That's, that's very common for cyclists to have a lot of flexion in that area of the back. And that's also where the most back pain happens is in that whole lumbar area or in pain and discomfort between the SI joint or the sacroiliac joint. And so multifidus plays a role in that because when it's strong and when your spine is extended, then all the vertebrae are in a line and also you reduce the possibility of a disc bulge or all kinds of other challenges that can happen with the spine, which is a lot of what we learned about in our IMS3 class. The last muscle. Okay, so we've got our top side of our, our deep core, which is the diaphragm. That's our umbrella. And then we have our two 
kind of, you almost think of them as, I suppose, telephone poles that run up the back either side of your spine. And then in the front side, we've got our cummerbund, which is, this is a weird looking diagram because we've got all kinds of weird stuff, but we're just using these as descriptors so that you have a mental idea of what these look like. And I recommend that if you want to know more about this and you want to fire these muscles and learn how to integrate them properly and work them, I recommend you go online and consult the almighty search engines and see pictures and look at them. There's lots of animations. There are a lot of good free content on there about how to work some of these muscles and what they do. And that's a great way for you to visualize what's happening because again, we're all visual learners. So I will put some resources in the Instagram drop and the Twitter drop on this, some screenshots I have of these muscles and that'll help get started on that process. And you can go forth and make the learnings, make the keyboard mudras. So we've got our, our backside is multifidus, our top side is diaphragm, front side is transverse abdominis, and that leaves us with the bottom side of our box. Oh, I forgot to mention this. It's a box, but it is definitely three-dimensional. Transversus abdominis wraps around the side of your abdomen and connects in the back. And actually, multifidus and transverse abdominis are joined at the lumbar thoracofascia. So they're connected. So this is one of the most important things to realize is that when transversus and multifidus are fired, this forms this sort of ring of hoop tension around your spine and your viscera. And this is what makes your hips and lower back stable and strong. So if you're a cyclist who finished a long ride or race this year and you had lower back pain, I'm sure that none of you listening have had that happen. This is probably the most likely explanation as to why is that your either multifidus and or transverse abdominus were not firing transversus abdominus were not firing to their optimum capacity and some of that could be because of your bike fit some of it could be because of your posture some of it can be because of your pedaling habits especially if you're yanking up really hard on those pedals do not freaking pull up on your pedals saw some really atrocious posts on Instagram recently from some other well-known coaches whom I shall not name who were talking about pulling up on the backside of the stroke. Don't do that. No. Clips pedals are not meant to pull up on. I'm going to have a really, uh, I'm very excited for an interview with an author of a really cool book next week. I'm not going to spoil it, but we're going to unpack this quite a bit because he wrote about this in his book. And I was so excited. I reached out to him and said, please be on my podcast. And he said, yes. So that's our gem for next week. But this is why most cyclists have lower back pain, poorly functioning TVA or transversus abdominis. That's the abbreviation for it and multifidus. And they reach around and connect. So that's our hoop tension. And on the top we have diaphragm and then the bottom we have our pelvic floor. And the pelvic floor has got all kinds of muscles going on in there. It's actually quite complicated. That's our group of muscles. So I'm not going to list all those at the moment. It doesn't, we don't need to list them all for the purposes of this discussion. What we need to understand is that the pelvic floor has to be functioning, has to be turned on. If you are a woman and you've had children, then clearly you can have some ongoing dysfunction with your pelvic floor, especially if you had a vaginal birth and if you had some complications from that, including some tearing, or, and also worth mentioning, if you had a C-section, then guess where the doctor incises you to take out the child? It's through your transverse abdominis. So 
either way, you can have very serious core dysfunctions if you're a woman who's had a child. And unfortunately, the vast majority of most Western doctors give women no resources to rehab their abdominal walls or their pelvic floor at all after childbirth. They just tell them to rest and drink lots of water and eat ice cream after they give birth. And then, you know, once the, the mom doesn't die and the kid's alive, they just send them home. It's pretty atrocious, actually. So if, you, if your core function changed dramatically after you had a kid, well, here's your seed on why. The odd thing about cycling is that we're basically, well, not basically, we are sitting on our pelvic floor. And so we can think about the pelvic floor like a, like kind of like a trampoline. And it goes, it's sort of roughly diamond shaped or really more kind of a weird triangle. And these muscles sort of spread across that floor. And there are holes in that floor or apertures, we'll call them. One for the anus the other for the urethra and in women and men and in the women, the urethra and the vagina. And the muscle tension on this pelvic floor has to be just like all the other muscles in this core inner core unit has to be functioning properly. And if things aren't firing properly, or if there is a lot of tension, a lot of people hold a lot of tension in their pelvic floor. What are the only animals to get bladder cancer? Well, humans and dogs. And what are the only animals who are also instructed to hold their feces and urine until the proper time? Hi there. Until the proper time to let things go. Humans and dogs, right? Every other animal, when they have to urinate or defecate, they just go. They never hold it in. But little boys and little girls are told in school that you can't go to the bathroom. And if you wet your bed, you're a bad person, right? Or if you poop in your pants, you're a bad kid and parents get upset, right? And this is all part of normal childhood development. But you can see quickly how this can lead to some chronic muscle tension in the pelvic floor. So what is chronic tension in the pelvic floor about? It's about holding on to things that you don't want to let go of, or maybe that you're embarrassed of, or maybe you're ashamed of. This is just one little potential avenue into the psychology of why someone would have challenges with their pelvic floor, right? Let alone sexual trauma. If you had sexual trauma or experienced that when you were a kid, then obviously that can also result in chronic tension of the pelvic floor, not wanting to release or guarding, right? So things to think about. How do we work with the pelvic floor? Well, that's also a really big topic and there's a ton of info and wormholes to go down on that. But broadly speaking, the exercise that you're familiar with and could potentially begin to play with would be a Kegel, right? And for men, the fundamental cue there is bring the boys home, all right? Try to suck your nuts up into your abdomen. And for women, you get to be a little more imaginative and playful. You can think about, well, picking things up with your JJ. We'll just leave it at that. There are all kinds of creative things to find out on the internet out there. Um, on that one, I'd say choose your search terms carefully because you can destroy your, your uh, inbox with all kinds of who knows what pretty quickly, I would guess, if you start to search on things that uh, will say transgress into the dark, dark web or whatever, however that stuff works. I'm not really sure. Wow. 
my neighbors already have their Halloween decorations out, and it's only mid-September when I'm recording this. These guys really like Halloween. There's like 15 skeletons going on. Good for them. So, one other bit I'll mention, you can actually work myofascially to reduce or eliminate adhesions or calcification in these muscles, all of these muscles. Some of them are a lot harder to get to than others. The deep muscles are obviously challenging, but one that people aren't necessarily aware of is you can actually do a myofascial release on your pelvic floor. And Kelly Starrett's got some videos on this. I'll talk about these a bit, and then I'll put a link to his videos in the show notes. But the rules are really simple. You know, he kind of talks about using a relatively soft ball. Like uh, there's some squishy myofascial balls you can use. Um, if you're a little more daring, you can use something a little firmer. I've actually used my rogue um, myofascial ball. Uh, it's called the supernova. It's a blue ball. It's about the size of a grapefruit. It's got some texture on it. And you just don't want to use too much weight. Also, as Kelly says, just don't go in any of the holes. That's your rule. But you kind of trace the outline of that, of the bony aspects of that pelvic floor and see if you get any big releases, right? Don't use too much weight. Don't hurt yourself. Those are the rules. But there's some ideas there. You can do the same thing with the transversus abdominis. You can have successful release of the diaphragm also. Some people can get quite aggressive with that stuff. They can use things like kettlebell handles and whatnot. Again, be careful. Uh, don't do anything extreme. You don't want to tear some critical organ in your abdomen or you know, do damage to any of your digestive organs. That's not good. Uh, but sometimes that stuff can provide a bit of release. I can also recommend that it can be successful sometimes for you to dig into just under your rib cage with your fingers especially during um, some inhales and exhales. And that can help to release some adhesions of the diaphragm right around your liver and to some other, to the ab wall and things like that. And that can help free up some breathing. So some thoughts to play with. Hopefully that's interesting info for you all. Useful info has some utility. I look forward to hearing your comments on this and hopefully the audio quality was reasonable in my walking pod didn't have too many cars, had a few conversations, had lots of crickets. Leave your comments on my Instagram channel, and thank you once again for listening. Uh, let me know what you think of all this, and if you have questions, hit me there on the IG, and I'll try to get back to you. Blessings to everyone. Looking forward to my next week podcast with the author of The Secret Book. That's not what it's called. This is what I'm calling it, and I'm quite sure that everyone will enjoy that. Thank you. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident gratitude.